Hey everybody, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com and this is the first episode of our new podcast, uh, Antiwar News with me, your host Dave DeCamp. Uh, for those who don't know, Antiwar.com is an independent media site and we uh, publish a ton of news and opinion pieces on U.S. foreign policy from our anti-war, non-interventionist point of view. It was founded in 1995 by Eric Garris and Justin Romando, so it's been around for a very long time. Uh, Justin passed away in 2019, but his full archive, you know, you could skim through there. And he was one of the best anti-war writers of our time. Um, and Eric Garris, he still runs the site. Um, he's still at it. And so the idea of the show is to give you kind of a brief rundown of all the news stories that we cover, because that's a pretty big component of our site. And as the news editor, um, you know, I write a few articles each day and, uh, we also have Jason Ditz writing and Kyle Anzalone, our opinion editor. Um, and we run stuff from other sites up top sometimes if, if it's, if it's good stuff, but yeah, I just want to deliver, you know, a con concise, uh, new show for you. It's going to be, you know, I'm streaming here on YouTube. It's going to be on all the podcast apps where you can find it, um, five days a week. Um, and I'm just going to jump right into it. And these are your headlines. As you can see, the page here is pretty massive, as always. Um, these are your headlines for Monday, July 18th, 2022. So the first one at the top of the page by me, uh, the U.S. implies that Ukraine can use HIMARS against Russian targets in Crimea. Um, so HIMARS are the high-mobility artillery rocket systems that the U.S. recently started sending Ukraine. Um, they're sending them to Ukraine with munitions that can hit targets up to 50 miles. It marked, you know, kind of the longest range weapons they sent Ukraine. It was a pretty big escalation in military aid. When they sent these weapons, the Biden administration said they got assurances from Ukrainian officials that they won't be used to target Russian territory because they feared there would be, uh, you know, that could escalate into a much bigger conflict. But now over the weekend, we had a Ukrainian intelligence official say that um, they're going to start hitting targets in Crimea and that and suggested that they could use the HIMARS. Now, Crimea is to Russia is Russian territory. They took it in 2014. They've controlled it ever since. But Ukraine and the U.S. don't recognize Crimea. So when I saw that intelligence official say that, I asked the State Department if the ban on using HIMARS on Russian territory applies to Crimea. And what they told me, uh, quote, in an email from a State Department spokesperson, they said, quote, Crimea is Ukraine. The United States does not and will never recognize Russia's purported annexation of Crimea, end quote. Um, so, you know, this means that the U.S. Uh, agreement that they had with Ukraine with these weapons, I guess, doesn't apply to Crimea and that, uh, you know, this could be a major escalation if Ukraine starts attacking Crimea. And former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev made clear that Russia would view would view it as a serious escalation. Uh, he said, quote, should anything of the kind happen, they will be faced with a doomsday. Very quick and tough. There will be no avoiding it, but they keep on provoking the general situation by such statements, end quote. Uh, so that's what Medvedev said, according to Russia's task news agency. And the way they kind of summarized his quote was that he was referring to Ukrainian leadership. He wasn't necessarily saying it would be doomsday for the whole world, but Medvedev has made clear throughout this whole war that, you know, the U.S. is risking war with Russia by flooding these weapons into Ukraine. They're risking war with Russia, which could 
you know, direct war quickly escalate into nuclear war, which is something that's widely believed, but it doesn't seem to be factored into the Biden administration's response to the war. Um, and Medvedev also said that the fact that Ukraine and some NATO nations don't recognize Crimea as Russian territory poses a systemic threat to Russia. Um, so every day it seems like, you know, the U.S. is escalating its role in that war. Um, and here's some more escalation. Uh, the House, this is the next story. The House NDAA would authorize training for Ukrainian pilots to use U U.S. warplanes. So uh, last Thursday night, the House passed their version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, which is the military spending bill. And their version is for $850 billion. Now, what's pretty sad is that President Biden requested $813 billion. So the House, you know, is ready to hand him an extra $37 billion. Um, but one of the, you know, they, they tack in a bunch of amendments to this bill. And one of the amendments that was added by Rep. Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican from Illinois. He's an ultra hawk. I mean, this whole time he's been calling for direct U.S. military invention, intervention. In the beginning of the war, uh, when the big line from Zelensky was, you know, no fly zone, no fly zone, Kinzinger was one of the biggest proponents of the idea in the U.S. And a no fly zone would involve the U.S. shooting down Russian planes and bombing Russian missile systems. That's what it would require. So it would be direct war. It would mean World War III. And that's the kind of guy Kinzinger is. Um, but this amendment he introduced would authorize $100 million to train Ukrainian uh, pilots to use F-15s. Um, well, it doesn't specify what kind of plane, but Ukraine has been asking for F-15s and F-16s. Uh, according to Defense News, it would take about three months to train pilots to use these planes at a basic level. Um, so we'll see what will come of this. You know, that would be another big escalation of military aid if the U.S. started supplying, um, you know, these warplanes. Um, but the way these amendments work, you know, they put a bunch in in the House. The Senate passes their version, which is going to be bigger, by the way. Uh, the Senate version is $858 billion, um, So that's $45 billion more than Biden asked. Um, but the Senate still has to pass their version. And then they have their amendments. And then the House and Senate negotiate the final version of what's going to go to Biden's desk in what they call conference. Um, and in there, a lot of amendments get stripped, but it's usually the good ones. You know, just about every year they, they put something in to end the war in Yemen and it got, it gets taken out. But I have a feeling that something like this as a bipartisan consensus for, you know, supporting Ukraine is so strong that that one will probably, probably make it in. And then the next one here. So the big news of the weekend, really um, what most foreign policy headlines were about was Biden's trip to the Middle East. Um, and this is about his speech that he gave to the Gulf Cooperation Council Summit in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, that he attended on Saturday. And really his message to the summit was that the U.S. will not walk away from the Middle East. So there's all this talk about how the U.S. is uh, stepping back from the region. Um, but his message to these Gulf leaders, these Gulf monarchs, um, and it was also attended by uh, Iraq um, Egypt and Jordan and the GCC countries. Uh, but Biden's message was basically that, you know, China and Russia threaten this so-called rules-based order and that these, uh, you know, Gulf countries have to work with the U S to uphold this rules-based order. Now it's interesting because Biden has characterized, you know, the U S China relationship, the U S China competition as a battle between autocracy and democracy. So I just wonder where the Gulf monarch monarchs, uh, fit in, in there, but he told the Arab leaders that the U.S. wouldn't leave a vacuum in the region. 
um, that could be filled by China, Russia, or Iran, or Iran. And one of the main purposes of Biden's trip to the region was to deepen Israeli-Arab cooperation. Uh, we'll get more into this in the next couple articles about his trip. Um, but really, Israel is looking to build this military alliance with these Arab countries. Um, but And Biden was supposed to push for more Arab involvement. But since a lot of these Arab countries, they don't want to publicize that they're cooperating with, with Israel because mo many of them don't have diplomatic ties. So it's not really clear yet if much progress was made in that front. But, you know, the way this stuff usually goes is that there'll be some leaks to the media and we might find out some more details. Um, one, another thing on his agenda was the ceasefire in Yemen. So uh, Biden said that the Saudis are willing to continue the ceasefire that's been holding relatively well. There's been a lot of fighting on the ground, it seems like. But since the end of March, the Saudis have not. The Saudi-led coalition hasn't launched any airstrikes in Yemen, which is huge. Um, so they... Uh, say they're going to continue it. Um, you know, the U.S. has been supporting Saudi Arabia in its brutal bombing campaign against Yemen and blockade since 2015. Um, U.N. estimates 377,000 people have died in that war. Uh, so it's brutal and it needs to end. And there's a uh, war powers resolution that was introduced in the House. And there's a similar one now in the Senate to end U.S. involvement in the war, which would end the war because the, the U.S., um, you know, maintain Saudi warplanes that bomb Yemen without that support, they would have to ground their air force. So now is the time to kind of push this as Biden's coming under all this pressure for his relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's a really good time to push it. Um, so Biden, during the speech, he also falsely claimed at the summit that there are currently no U.S. troops engaged in combat in the Middle East. But he just told Congress uh, in June in a letter that there are U.S. combat troops in Yemen Syria and Iraq. And in Syria, they, they've just kind of escalated. It seems like there's been a lot of raids uh, and drone strikes against ISIS leaders in northwest Syria. Um, okay, so the next one, this is more about Biden's trip. Biden disputes the Saudi account of MBS meeting on Khashoggi. So if you see, you know, you watch the co mainstream coverage of Biden's trip and the main focus is uh, about Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist who was killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. So um, after the his meeting with MBS, with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, Biden said that he raised the issue of Khashoggi like right away, and he's told him that he holds him personally responsible for it. The Saudi line is, is that MBS was not responsible and that it was like some rogue elements, I guess, in the Saudi government, and that those people have been punished. And then uh, you had uh, one of Saudi Arabia's top diplomats who attended the meeting kind of disputed Biden's account. Uh, he said that he didn't hear Biden tell MBS that he held him personally responsible. So when Biden landed in, uh, in Washington on Sunday, a reporter asked him if that account, if the Saudi diplomat was being truthful about his account of the meeting, and Biden simply said no. Um, so it's just interesting to see, you know, optically this trip was a total disaster for Biden. Uh, Saudi officials said that when Biden brought up Khashoggi, um, you know, they, MBS compared it to what he called, you know, mistakes by the U S government that U S leadership wasn't, didn't necessarily order. And he brought up Abu Ghraib, the prison in Iraq where U S military personnel, you know, tortured and sexually abused prisoners, and uh, he also raised the issue of Shireen Abu Ekla, 
the Palestinian American journalist who was gunned down by Israeli forces back in May in the West Bank. Now there's been investigation after investigation, concluding, including from mainstream Western media outlets like CNN, that it evidence shows, suggests that it was a targeted killing because Abu Ekla was wearing a big press vest. It was very clear that she was a journalist and, you know, she was shot and killed by Israeli forces. Now, the U.S. has said that it's, it's likely that Israel killed her, but they, they don't think it was intentional kind of. And when Biden was in Israel, you know, right before Saudi Arabia, he didn't confront Yair Lapid, the prime minister, um, about it, although he did just become prime minister. But, he you know, he didn't confront the Israelis. He said that there needs to be an open and transparent investigation. Um, but you could see, you know, the way, you know, he handles... Um, one or the other. Um, then this next one, it's more Saudi stuff. Uh, contradicting Biden, Saudi foreign minister says opening airspace to Israeli flights is not a step towards normalizing. So during President Biden's trip to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia agreed to open its airspace to Israeli civilian flights, a move President Biden called the first tangible step towards normalization between the two nations. Uh, but the Saudis deny diplomatic ties with Israel are on the horizon. So this is Saudi foreign minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan uh, he said, quote, no, this had nothing to do with diplomatic ties with Israel. The issue of overflights is a decision we took in the interest of providing connectivity between countries in the world, and we hope that it will make some travelers' lives easier. It's not in any way a precursor to any further steps, end quote. Um, so, again, this goes back, you know, saying these Arab countries, they don't really want to publicize their cooperation with Israel, so this kind of seems like an attempt to downplay it. Um, but... It, it does seem if there is some sort of Saudi-Israeli normalization, it is definitely going to be uh, not for a while, you know, maybe years down the line. But it does seem to be going in this direction. It's something that Biden wants to get done. Uh, I, I I don't think he's going to get it done anytime soon. But on Sunday, uh, Lapid, you know, he, he kind of disputed uh, the Saudi characterization. He said, oh, what's happening with Saudi Arabia is indeed normalization. Uh, but he recognized that the process could take take a while um and he he said that the two nations are taking baby steps uh in that direction so again you know i didn't get into it too much in these articles but i wrote a lot about it in the lead up to his trip a big part about this was the this effort to kind of build this anti-iran alliance uh in the middle east um and i think we're going to see more kind of trickle out about what transpired um, you know, on the sidelines of that GCC summit and what we might see in the future. Um, earlier this year, you know, you saw Saudi Arabia openly um, take part in military drills with the U.S. and Israel for the first time uh, ever that they openly conducted drills with Israel. Um, so that's pretty significant. And that's also a result of the UAE and Bahrain normalizing with Israel in 2020 under the U.S. brokered Abraham Accords. Um, yeah, it's definitely a big thing to keep an eye on. Because, you know, they've described it as a Middle East NATO. Um, that's what Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli prime minister, proposed to Biden last year. Um, King Abdullah of Jordan, he said, you know, sign me up for a, for a Middle East NATO. I'm, I'm all in. Um, so and then we got a couple th more things here about the NDAA if people want more information on that this is house military spending bill is a boon to the arms industry this is by william hart hartung over at responsible statecraft so if you want to read some more on that you could just go to the page and check that that out uh but the last thing here on the top 
is Iran, and this is interesting. An advisor to Iran's supreme leader said Sunday that Iran has the technical means to build a nuclear weapon, but stressed that the Islamic Republic still hasn't decided to do so. Uh, so Iran has never attempted to enrich uranium at the 90% level needed for weapons grade. But Kamel Karazi, the head of Iran's Strategic Foreign Relations Council, said that Tehran could do so easily. So um, basically what he said was that uh, there's been no decision. You know, they haven't decided to make a nuclear weapon, but we could if we wanted to, um, which is kind of an interesting shift in rhetoric. I haven't really seen Iranian officials say this, at least recently in the few years that I've really followed this, you know, as closely as I do now. Um, and maybe it was an attempt to kind of get the U.S. back to the negotiating table because the talks to revive the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, have really stalled. Biden has taken a very hard line position. He maintains that the U.S. will not lift sanctions that are not um, nuclear related or that will not uh, give Iran the economic benefit that the JCPOA was supposed to give. But, you know, the thing is, Trump, when since he after he pulled out of the JCPOA in 2018, he just kept sanction after sanction on Iran. Um so they might not technically be nuclear related, but they all came after the U.S. pulled out of the deal. And in his final days, after Biden uh, won the election, uh, Elliot Abrams, who was um, Trump's point man on Iran towards the end, said that they were putting on sanction, all these sanctions to prevent the next administration from rejoining the JCPOA. Well, it looks like their strategy has succeeded because now, um, you know, here we are uh, almost two years into Biden's presidency and, you know, he still hasn't making any significant effort to revive the JCPOA. And while he was in Israel on the, his trip in the Middle East, he signed a declaration with Lapid uh, and part of the declaration, you know, they vowed never to allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. The U.S. said it would use all of its national power to prevent Iran from acquiring one. Um, and I always have to mention in my articles, um, you know, the irony of this because Israel has a secret nuclear weapons program that the U.S. doesn't acknowledge, and they are always talking about Iran uh, building a, you know, having a rogue nuclear weapons program, which doesn't exist. There's still no indication that Iran has moved to make a nuclear bomb, um, you know, but just judging by its efforts to revive the JCPOA, I, I see no signals that they are, um, despite these comments that that were made. Um, you know, there, Iran is also a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Israel refuses to sign because of its secret nuclear weapons program. So again, I mean, this is just, you know, peak irony. And it's something that I like to point out in, in these articles, just because it's context that's always missing from the mainstream. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really it for today. Uh, the weekend, it was a little slow. It was mostly Biden's big trip to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it was interesting to see there was some scathing coverage of it in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, it's interesting to see the pushback. Uh, you, kind of, a, it's just a different view on the U.S.-Saudi relationship than it was before. Although in the Washington Post, Max Boot wrote on Sunday, he was defending Biden. He said, Give, you know, cut him some slack for going there. Um, but you yeah, will see how this all shakes, you know, shakes out. And that's that's it. That's the first show. Um, so if you're watching on YouTube, you could also subscribe on all the podcast apps. 
We have, uh, I set up an email if you want to send me some comments, suggestions. It's antiwarnewswithdave at gmail.com. We're going to work on shortening that into a very simple, easy to remember email. But for now, antiwarnewswithdave at gmail.com. I'll put it in the description. And it's still our fundraiser at antiwar.com. We are entirely reader funded. Um, this And it's our quarterly fundraiser and we could really use some support to keep going. Um, I think our content speaks for itself. There's not many sites that do uh, put out as much as we do, but we need, uh, you know, just to maintain our independence, we're just reader funded and that's the way it's going to be. And hopefully through this show, we can expand our audience and I hope people enjoy it. And I'm going to be bringing you the news five days a week like this. And I'm very excited to be starting. And again, please give me any feedback. Let me know, especially if there's a podcast app or somewhere else you think I should be putting the video out. I'm working on a few more places, but please let me know. Uh, But thank you for listening and I will uh, catch you tomorrow.